right. Good evening. My name is Ryan Miner, and you are listening to Minor Detail. <laughs> I have such the radio voice tonight. A MinerDetail.com. Now, you can find us on blogtalkradio.com every Sunday night at A Minor Detail. Thanks for listening. Uh, we're also on the web at aminerdetail.com. And tonight we have Bethesda Magazine contributing editor Lou Peck. So I want to welcome our guest, Lou. Hey, Lou, how are you? Uh, I'm very well, Ryan. Thank you for having me. Lou, it is a pleasure to have you um, on the show for the first time. You and I uh, first met, I believe it was back in 2015, and we had lunch at a few times, and we talked about our, I think, our mutual love of politics. And you have been doing journalism, I believe, longer than I have been alive, which is a good thing because I think you do it extraordinarily well, Lou. You, um, I, before we get into, <laughs> thank you for the compliment. Although you made me feel very old. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm I'm 31, and I'll be 32 in December. But Lou, um, you have you have definitely risen to the top of my list for um, both favorite journalist, most comprehensive journalist. Um, you do such a good job um, at Bethesda Magazine, and I read your material um, every time you release a story. I follow you. In fact, I get your tweets sent to my phone. Um, that uh, every time you tweet out something, I instantly read it on my my iPhone because what you write is so important and vital. Um, to my passion, which is politics and political journalism. But before we get into the show, Lou, um, let's talk about you. Um, tell us about um, you, what you've been doing for uh, the past several years, and uh, what you're doing now. Uh, well, I uh, just uh, to back up a little bit, you're right. I've, uh, If you're 31, I've been in Washington for now almost 40 years, so uh, – I've been in Washington longer than your uh, lifetime. I actually got to Washington in 1978 uh, covering Congress, and I eventually uh, moved into a situation where uh, for about 20 years I ran a daily publication for National Journal on Congress that started out as a once-a-day newsletter, became a twice-a-day newsletter in the year of the web, became basically 24-7. But in any event, I left that about uh, – five or six years ago and um, started writing for Bethesda magazine because uh, in part my uh, the editor and publisher of Bethesda magazine Steve Hall was my boss at National Journal when I was uh, running the publication on Congress and I uh, have been writing for their magazine since about 20, 2011 and in 2013 Steve asked me to start a uh, uh, a weekly politics blog which has now been uh, become part of what they uh, call Bethesda Beat, a daily news service that's been running for about uh, about three years. So, in other words, my work appears both in the magazine and uh, and uh, online at this point. Uh, and actually, for the last three months, I have been on a project not related to Bethesda Magazine, but uh, uh, the Almanac of American Politics has been around for, I think, uh, close to 50 years, and uh the 28 it's it's revised every two years and the 2018 edition is going to be out this summer and i'm part of the team of authors that's uh helping to revise it uh relying on my uh long coverage of congress 
As a former Capitol Hill staffer, I can personally attest to the value that National Journal is. We read it. We read it religiously, and I know many Capitol Hill staffers now who currently work on the Hill still read National Journal, just as I, re- I read Bethesda Magazine's uh, political journalism religiously. And you guys really cover um, plenty of the uh, the Metro D.C. stories. And what we're, we're going to talk about this evening, and um, we're going to go right into it, and there's a lot of upcoming political races. Uh, it seems like the cycle just ended in 2016, and now we're already talking about 2018 <laughs> politics. Politics is it's we just keep talking about this in perpetuity, and it's a never-ending cycle. It is a never-ending cycle, though. I, I think I, I was invited to appear before the Bethesda Rotary Club about two days after the. Uh, after uh, November's election, and already I was getting questions about uh, about 2018, both at the state level and at the uh, county level. So you're right; it, you know, presidential uh, campaigns go on for four years, but it clearly, even at the state and uh, local level, you have campaigns that uh, that start immediately after the last election is over. Well, tonight we're going to talk about three big campaigns, um, and it's going to be the the six congressional. Excuse me, the 6th Congressional District. We're going to talk about the gubernatorial election, and then we're going to talk about Montgomery County. And as a subset of that, we're going to talk about the executive race as well as the county council races. So let's go start right into it, Lou. John Delaney, who is a current congressman, he's been elected since 2012. He was, he actually beat in the primary um, the kind of the golden boy of the Democratic Party in Maryland, uh, Rob Garagiola. And Delaney, uh, this business executive, a very successful public speaker, successful businessman, um, and I should add a self-made multimillionaire, jumped into the primary and surprised many of the Democratic establishment and beat Garagiola. And then he went on to beat longtime Republican Congressman Roscoe Bartlett, who served the 6th District since 1992 when he beat Beverly Byron. And this is a uh, – in, in ever since, Congressman Delaney has um, fought back two opponents, one uh, in 2014, which was Dan Bongino, who came, uh, I believe, within 3,000 votes of beating the congressman, and then again last year in 2016 uh, when he fended off a challenge against Republican Ami Hober. So – John Delaney is expected to run for governor, um, and the the talk of the town, um, according to Frederick Extra, another publication in Frederick, Maryland, um, my friend Catherine uh, Herbrandt says that John Delaney is expected to make some sort of announcement on June 26. What are you hearing, Lou? Uh, I, I have not heard that day specifically, but uh, what I have heard is he's, uh, you know, he for the first time to my knowledge about a week or so ago via the Baltimore Sun he came came out and said he was quote absolutely considering quote unquote a a run for governor uh keep in mind when he was running for re-election last year and I talked to him he said quote I have quote no plans unquote to run run for governor I quickly reminded him that 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 statement was had had a big enough loophole to drive a Mack truck through and I said okay might your plans change if you're re-elected to Congress, and I got a, uh, 
I got an Abe Lincoln quote to the effect of I can only paddle around the next bend of the river, which told me that, you know, he was leaving himself a lot of leeway. Uh, since the election where he where he beat uh, Ami Hober by about 14 points, he'd, he'd been fairly silent on on the, the matter of running for governor. So really in the last week or two was something of a switch that he's now openly acknowledging it. Uh, presumably he's going to say something in June, and uh, I, I, I would – Obviously, I'm not privy to exactly what his thinking is at this point, but I would be I would be somewhat surprised if he doesn't go for it. I say that from the standpoint that while uh, I think he will tell you, just like any other member of Congress will tell you, how much they love their jobs, uh, I think it has to be a very frustrating situation for both him and a lot of other Democratic members of Congress being being in a being in a minority in the in the House of Representatives. Uh, yeah, back when I first got to Washington 40 years ago, somebody with a lot more experience than I said, you know, said to me at one point uh, that one of the most irrelevant jobs in uh, Washington is being a member of the minority party in the House of Representatives. And in those <laughs> days, it was the Republicans seemed to be in a permanent mi- minority. Now you have the Democrats. Uh, it's very unclear, you know, at what point in the future that they might have a shot at uh, retaking the majority. And until that happens, I think, you know, John Delaney and about any other member of the Democratic uh, minority is going to is in a very frustrating position. Uh, and plus, on top of that, remember as you point out, this is the uh, fifth wealthiest member of Congress. He was very successful as a financial executive. He's used to running his his own show, and I think there has been a pattern in Congress where people who have been in executive roles get to a legislature where they're one of 435. That can also be frustrating after a while. So, I think well, of, for, the, for those for those reasons, I would be surprised if he does if he doesn't go for uh, for the governorship. Well, I think so as well. I, yeah. all, all of your points are um, one of the one of the many reasons why I believe that he will. And I think he's naturally predisposed. Uh, instead of being one of four hundred and thirty five. He was a rather successful executive of a company, and he made a lot of money, and he found tremendous success doing it. And so – and he's taken on – he's been ranked as one of the most bipartisan members of Congress. He's been given some sort of award recently. He's focusing and, – and I, I know all this because he, I, he's my uh, district's congressman, so I live in the 6th Congressional District here in North Potomac, and – I know all of this because he's working – I see all of his email updates. I've talked to him one-on-one. He's working across the aisle on infrastructure, uh, veterans issues. Um, he, sort of, he sort of shies away from the, the hardcore social issues. I mean I know he believes in climate change, and I mean I would say that he is a down-the-line Democrat. However, he's certainly not as uh, progressive um, or left-wing, where he's not in the camp of a Jamie Raskin or a Bernie Sanders, uh, it's it's hard to classify him. But I would say that he's a progressive who is productive. And Lou, I wanted to tell you, last Tuesday, Congressman Delaney held a military academy night in which congressmen invite the um, the, the military academies and they bring their staff into uh, it, it was at Gaithersburg High School, and he brought mm-hmm. his staff in and he um, was talking to high school students and whomever wanted to show up about the process for applying to the the Naval Academy, the Coast Guard, West Point, et cetera. 
And I had an opportunity to talk to the congressman there, and I must say Delaney is very hands-on. He's everywhere. He's been all over the place. After his very close call in 2014, I believe he started really showing up to the district, getting out in western Maryland, being uh, amongst his constituency. And so I I had an opportunity to talk to him, and I asked him, and I pulled him aside, and I, I don't think he would mind sharing this, but nonetheless – um, I asked him, I said, Congressman, are you considering running for governor? And he said, yes, I'm absolutely considering it. And we had a discussion, and I told him flat out that I believe that he would be one of the most formidable candidates because he sort of takes on the the Larry Hogan-style brand of Maryland politics. He's not too far to the left. He's, for all intents and purposes, I believe he's a moderate Democrat uh, he's an executive type. Um, he's he's also, um, I mean, being in the minority, as you mentioned, is very difficult for for any any congressman. And I think he's struggling. And he he made a comment to me. He's saying, "Look, I'm a Democrat in Maryland. I believe I could get more things done with a Democratic legislature, of which we know is not going to switch over magically in 2018 to the Republicans. It's just not going to yeah. happen." And deeply blue Maryland. So Delaney is definitely considering running for governor, and so is Kevin Kamenitz. So is what I'm hearing is Rasharon Baker, and another guy uh, named Ben Jealous, who is uh, Maryland's NAACP uh, executive director. I believe that's his title. And I think there's a few other business uh, folks. I believe I believe he's the former uh, uh, national uh, chairman or president of the NAACP. Um, okay. I think he was ba- he was based here in uh, since the NAACP is actually based in Baltimore. You know, he obviously has Maryland uh, Maryland ties and roots. But I believe he was the president of the National NAACP for a time. But so, uh, but you're, you're absolutely right. There's a uh, I mean I think the three people uh, who's well I should say there were probably four people for a while whose names just were out there. You know, have been out there almost since Larry Hogan. Was elected. Uh, Kamenitz and Rashard Baker are two, were two of them, and clearly they have nothing to lose because uh, they're both term limited. Uh, Rashard Baker made an attempt in 2014, I believe, to have uh, term limits changed so he could run for another term. That was narrowly defeated, so he's he's out in 2018. So is Kamenitz. So they really have no place else to go. Uh, John Delaney, obviously, you know, when you're as wealthy as he is, it's not as though you uh, you need the uh, House of Representatives salary. So he's in a position certainly to certainly to roll the dice. And uh, uh, you, you have so you've had those three, though you've had those three circling since 2014. And you know, I should have mentioned earlier, uh, literally within about a year of being elected to Congress, uh, Delaney was in, back in 2014 made noises about running in the. 2014 Democratic primary about a week before the filing deadline, <laughs> just so you know, decided just said no, I'm going to run for re-election. But that told me that you know it hadn't taken long for him to be to get restless in a uh, in a uh, in a Democratic um, minority situation. On top of that, for a while you had the you had Tom Perez in in, in speculation, former Montgomery County uh, Council member who went on to serve in Martin O'Malley's administration, of course. Obviously, I had got tremendous visibility as Barack Obama's labor secretary, mm-hmm. and I'm told that had Perez not, you know, won the Democratic national chairmanship in 
February, February, which was obviously a, a very contested election, he still might well have looked at uh, running for governor, but he's now committed to uh, 40 years in the DNC chairmanship. See, but you have so see, you have those three who they're all along. You, Ben Jealous is now uh, is now indicated he's interested. Um, Rich Madaleno, a state senator from mm. uh, Montgomery County, has you know has indicated an interest. Doug Gansler has sort of been lurking there since his loss to Anthony Brown in the uh, in the 2014 primary. Uh, you know he he's not he is certainly not disavowed interest, and there there are actually also a couple of other candidates so who have just cropped up in recent weeks who are who frankly have a uh, a fairly long road road to hoe to. Uh, Try to uh, get their names out there, but who are talking about it? And I, you know, I'm not sure what all this activity is is all about outside of the fact that I suspect there are a, few, a number of people, whether you know it's ultimately going to be borne out or not, who feel that uh, Donald Trump's election may have made Larry Hogan more vulnerable than Larry Hogan would have been if had, had it been President President Hillary Clinton. Well, that that was certainly the argument, and which I made to people. I said if Hillary Clinton had won, Larry Hogan would be in a much stronger position. Not that he isn't, because by all indications, and from the polls that you and I have both uh, seen released by the Washington yeah. Post, while while he's still popular, um, that's going to fade, I believe, into the election. And but I think Larry Hogan can point to several tangible accomplishments. They just uh, they finished one of the most productive, as Larry Hogan called it, uh, uh, general sessions. Um, and I think that you, you're going to find that bipartisanship being played um, by the governor. And, I, you know, I do believe that Governor Hogan is extraordinarily popular. There are still, however, some leftover sentiments in which he did not endorse Donald Trump. In fact, I think he said he's going to vote for his father, who – who, you know, yes, we, who just passed away. Uh, he, he, in yeah. fact, I believe, I believe he announced on on election day he had written in his father's name. So, uh, not uh, a bad choice. <laughs> so, uh, but the, uh, uh, yeah, you know, I, I think it, it, it's interesting because very clearly, when you know, I fully agree with you. Uh, you know, as I as I said though, about three weeks before the election, I spoke to a group in Annapolis, and I. You know, I said Larry Hogan may be saying publicly he's going to write in somebody other than Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, but I also said I suspect he was going home at night and privately praying for Hillary Clinton to be president because uh, clearly it would be far more advantageous politically to him. Uh, and, you know, I, th- I think the, and as I said at that time, you know, if Donald Trump is elected, uh, what's going to happen immediately is the Democrats are going to try to wrap Donald Trump around Larry Hogan's neck at every every possible turn, which is what the Democrats have been trying to do. So far, the Democrats really have not laid much of a glove on him, uh, in part because I think, uh, you know, I mean, I think there have been a couple of factors coming out of Washington that have played into that, one being the fact that uh, had, you know, if, if we were sitting here today with almost 100 days into the, uh, the Trump uh, administration, there had been a repeal of uh, Obamacare, and uh, it, it would have translated into a l- loss of a lot of funds from the state of Maryland and possibly people who losing insurance. I think there would be a lot more heat on Hogan. The fact that so far the Republicans have not been able to come up with anything, and Obamacare is, is still there, 
I think, you know, ironically, has probably taken the, the heat off Larry Hogan to a certain degree. We'll see if you know, if ultimately that changes or whether that situation remains in uh, place for the foreseeable future. Uh, um, but, no, I think I've – I think that uh, you know the Baltimore Sun did an uh, editorial just in the last, you know, in, in the fairly recent, uh, no, in the last couple of weeks, which basically uh, went through all the pros and cons in terms of, you know, what Hogan has going for him, what hasn't Hogan has going against him, and ultimately said that, you know, notwithstanding some of the, the potential landmines that lie ahead, this is still Larry Hogan's election to lose, and I would. I would tend to agree with that. Uh, I agree. You know, uh, uh, notwithstanding that, as as people have started to point out, and uh, you know, which I which I tried to point out last fall as well, uh, people tend to forget what happened in 2006, which was a Democratic wave year. And while yeah. Bob Ehrlich's uh, approval ratings, while not as high as Hogan's, were still in the high 50s, he lost to Martin O'Malley. Uh, quite, you know, the, one obvious question. Well, there are two obvious questions. Number one, who the Democrats are ultimately going to run against Larry Hogan. Number two, what's the political situation come November 2018? Are the ingredients there for a Democratic wave year? Is it something far short of that? And I think those two things will determine whether Larry Larry Hogan becomes the first, uh, I think, Republican governor since the era of Francis McKeldin in the 50s to, uh, to win re-election. I think, yeah, I mean, it, it it would be an interesting narrative should Larry Hogan win re-election. And as the Baltimore Sun pointed out, and as you um, yeah. refreshed us, that they recently released an editorial that said it's his election to lose. I tend yeah. to agree. I also tend to agree that they have to choose the right Democratic candidate. Yeah. Uh, I, and I don't think that it's one of those situations where everybody's going to be angling to get to the left, the far left. It's interesting. Maryland is still, um, even though it's a deeply blue state, um, we're not. I don't think we're nearly as progressive as other states like Massachusetts um, or the, the the Northeast. We are we're progressive. We're a a dominant stronghold for Democrats, but many of those are still moderate leaning Democrats. And if you remember, um, and of course you do, Lou, and for our yeah. listeners, those um, Larry Hogan won. Uh, astronomically, what, 20 out of 23 counties and lost um, Montgomery, yeah. I believe he lost um, Prince George's and Baltimore City, and then and one I, on the yeah, Eastern Shore. I think, it was I, think he lost, I think he lost Charles as well in Southern Maryland. Oh, I, those were three, okay. those three counties, you're absolutely right, those three counties in Baltimore City, I think, were the only jurisdictions that did not vote for him. So, uh, yeah. no, no you, you, but, you know, you've hit the nail on the head, as has been pointed out, unlike a number of other states where I think conservative Democrats simply, you know, so-called Reagan Democrats, they were called, uh, you know, in uh, three decades ago, uh, basically left the Democratic Party and either became independents or became Republicans. I think there are a number of those kinds of Democrats who have remained inside the Democratic Party, but have voted in a fairly independent kind of manner. And you're right, Hulk Hogan clearly, uh, particularly in a place like Baltimore County, I think he uh, he got something like 60% of the vote uh, yeah. in 2014. Yeah, which which means a lot of those uh, a lot of those Democrats indeed uh, indeed voted for him. Which which sort of raises an interesting issue about a pri- you know, primary. You were mentioning earlier that Delaney is sort of a centrist Democrat, and I think you know you're right. He is. I I think on social issues and 
an environment, you probably wouldn't find a heck of a lot of difference between him and you know most of the Democratic Party in Congress, which tends to be pretty liberal on those issues. I think on economic issues and probably on defense issues, he is probably somewhat to the right of a number of his uh, you know his fellow Democrats. Uh, and and this sort of gets into the issue, which uh, you know I think is going to be telling, particularly if you have a very crowded uh, Democratic primary next year. Uh, you know, do the Democrats go with a centrist like Delaney or perhaps like Kevin Kamenetz, who obviously has been in something of a more of a swing swing county, if you will, and his governor is, is kind of a business-friendly Democrat? Or do you have sort of, the, if you will, the Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, progressive wing of the party, which is very energized right now, coming out in disproportionate numbers? And does that benefit a guy like Ben Jealous, does it benefit a guy like Rich Manileno, who is assuming he runs, which I'm not, you know, I'm not at all certain that happens at the end, but if he does, he's been a very outspoken critic of the governor and very much to his left. So, uh, and since you don't have a runoff in the primary, uh, you know, when we can get to this, when we talk about Montgomery County, just like, you know, the next executive of Montgomery County could come out of a Democratic primary with 20 to 25% of the the primary electorate, you know, it's not inconceivable in a very crowded Democratic primary. You could have somebody emerging with, you know, with with far less than an absolute majority. Sure. Um, so that brings us to the sixth congressional district, yeah. as it is being speculated. If, and I happen to believe, and you as well, that De- uh, Democratic John Delaney, congressman here in the sixth district, is going to take a stab at the gubernatorial primary, and that would leave open a Democratic seat, and that race is quickly uh, filling up with potential candidates. And, Lou, I'm going to read a list of candidates who are considering it or at least in the mix, and as I work my sources and as you have worked yours, we'll discuss them. So here's the list of potential – I have nine on my list – of potential Democratic candidates who would run in Maryland's 6th Congressional District in the 2018 Democratic primary, starting with Tony Puca, um, David Trone, uh, Bill Mm -hmm. Frick, Roger Mm -hmm. Mano, um, Andrew Duck, Brian Uh Feldman, Craig Rice. Krill uh-huh. Resnick and Arana uh-huh. Miller. Okay, um, I think I've heard virtually all of those names. Uh, yeah, I, I understand. I think I read. I have not spoken with him. I read something the other day that Andrew Duck, who, of course, I think ran twice for the, uh, you know, back when the district was had a different configuration, it was more Republican, uh, mm-hmm. lost twice to uh, uh, Roscoe Bartlett. Uh, yeah, you know, he's at least exploring at this time. But um, I think you know the interesting thing is that you know number one, I think without outside of Andrew Duck, uh, the other eight are all from Montgomery County, which clearly in the reconfigured district as it was redesigned in 2011 uh, is uh, is about I think about half the electorate now is uh, in that district's Montgomery County. The other half is is Frederick and uh, and Frederick and West. So. Uh, but uh, so you have eight of those candidates from Montgomery, six of whom, it should be noted, are uh, are members of the uh, of the Maryland General Assembly. Now, do I think that all 
six of them are going to jump into that race, particularly in a year where they would have to give up their legislative seats. I would doubt it. But it also says something that, you know, now that a open congressional seat is on the horizon, you have so many members of the General Assembly circling that uh, that opening which I th- which I think it's another discussion, which probably is another another radio show, and that's the fact that <laughs> the, Mar- the Maryland General Assembly, uh, for young ambitious uh, legislators, can be a very very frustrating uh, place. A lot of them, after about two terms, just start to get restless because uh, you have a lot of people who stay there a very long time. Starting with the state senate president, who's been state senate president for thirty years, and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. The speakers there have been there for 16 years, and down to some committee chairmen who've been there, been around for a for a long time. But I, but I think that's that's why you have a lot of uh, uh, Democratic legislators who are, even though you know, who are clearly seriously looking at at it as opposed to saying, okay, maybe I'll go back to Annapolis and you know stay there for another four years and hope hope something's going to come my way. The big question of the six congressional districts yeah. Democratic primary yeah. is, I believe, is David Trone. Will he run yeah. for the sixth congressional district or will he run for Montgomery County Executive? And yeah. according to one of my sources, yeah. uh, and I, and this person says that Trone is 99% committed to running for county executive, yeah. and there's been speculation that – he his congressional, or I'm sorry, his there's a campaign office currently in waiting, and it's located in the sixth congressional district. Uh, yeah. But but would it make sense, Lou, if David Trone, who mm. came in what was it third or second in the uh, second Jamie Raskin, yes. Yeah, in 2016. Yeah. And he just could not beat back a challenge from Jamie Raskin, who, as we all know, is very popular in the the liberal stronghold of the 8th Congressional District, Tacoma Parks, Over yeah. Spring, and that really carried the district. However, David Trone, when he ran, he carried uh, he carried the, the western portions of the district of Carroll County and yeah. Frederick. He set up shop out there, and he – uh, you know, David Trone spent, I think, the most money ever for a yeah. congressional race, and yeah. ended up losing. And he's been polling, he's been looking around to do something, and it's obvious that he is going to uh, pull that proverbial trigger here sometime soon. But I think that Trone is. Uh, m- all my sources say that he's going to run for for Montgomery County Executive, which should be interesting. Which, if he does, um, okay, fine. We know that he'll spend his own money. And we assume that he'll um, maintain the same standards of not taking any PAC money or special interest or from yeah. lobbyists. Um, but we also know that if he jumps into the 6th Congressional District, that's going to turn that upside down for folks like Bill Frick or Tony Puka or Andrew Duck and State Senator um, Roger Mano and others because Trone has basically unlimited funds to run in this uh, for anything that he wants, and, I, I, I think in the sense of you know the, him having the money, the kind of money he does. Yes, to, I guess he's sort of the proverbial eight hundred pound gorilla in whatever race he gets into. I think if he gets into the county executive's race, he probably uh, preempts a number of people who 
would like either like to emerge as quote the business can, candidate or uh, get a lot of support from the business community. I think uh, by the same token, in a uh, you know in a congressional race, yeah, I think anybody uh, if he gets into it, just about any other candidate is going to, particularly one who <clears throat> now holds office, is going to have to think very hard of okay, do I want to? This is not a year where I can take it where I got a free pass where if I lose I still can go back to Annapolis I gotta give, my, give up my seat do I really want to give up my seat and take a <laughs> shot at the guy you know who, who last time spent 13 million dollars now the last time I spoke to uh, David Trone and this has actually been a while given I've been on this other project uh, I asked him specifically I said well n- number one I said you know what are you thinking about next year and uh Basically, he, uh, he he indicated that I think his quote was that he was focused very heavily, quote unquote, on exploring the county executive's race, and uh, he, he he at the same time certainly did not rule out running in the sixth district. He said if John Delaney decides to run for governor, that's a you know a bridge will cross when uh, you know when when we come to it. Um, what is interesting is I give about whether or not you know, be it executive, be it anything else he runs for, whether he would rely to the degree he did the last time on self-funding. And he said this time he was planning to, uh, you know, I think make a more aggressive effort to try to uh, get donations, um, at least from small contributors. Uh, I suspect in part this is a this is to show that, you know, the campaign has grassroots support. But also I think it probably also would, whether he runs for Congress or whether he runs for executive, would help to inoculate him from the, uh, you know, from what he got hit with last time when he ran in the 8th District, which was a quote he was trying to, quote-unquote, buy the election. Uh, clearly, I think that doesn't mean that a lot of the money is still going to come out of his own pocket, but at least he can, you know, in, in this kind of scenario, somebody – raises that charge again, he can point out that, you know, that he's getting small donations from a, from a broad base and showing that, uh, you know, that really rank-and-file voters are sharing in, uh, you know, in sharing in uh, the cost of mounting the campaign. But uh, well, even go ahead. Even after, tw- even after 2016, David Trone opened himself up to significant criticism from several in, I, I, I don't want to use the word entrenched, but several prominent Democratic leaders in Montgomery County for the way that he conducted himself, the way that he spent money, the way that he thought that he could I, – this is just uh, I'm, a way that assumingly or allegedly he thought that he could perhaps come in and, and spend a lot of money and win the primary. But I know that the, his campaign didn't exactly make – a lot of new friends, and so it should be interesting to see if that sentiment carries over into whatever he decides to run for in 2018. But yeah. how will he campaign? Did he learn some some key lessons, and will he get the backing of the Democratic Party? Who many of those folks, and let's say in the central committees, they are you know they're going to support some of the more well-known Democrats who've been working from the grassroots up for. 10, 15, 20 years. And, uh, you know, this is a, particularly if you're talking about the county executive's race, this gets into a whole interesting area where historically uh, races in Montgomery County, be it for county council, be it for county executive, have been very 
sort of grassroots kinds of affairs. And I think this was, you know, you hit it on the head. This is probably one of the things that worked against both Throne and, to a large degree, Kathleen Matthews in the uh, in the Eighth District uh, primary last time. I mean, the three of them emerged. Uh, Raskin, Throne, and Matthews emerged as the, as the three major contenders. Uh, they obviously had wherewithal that was far outstripped anybody in the uh, you know in the rest of the in the rest of the field. And the rap on Trone was that he had sort of, you know, parachuted in at the last three months out and thought that, you know, all of a sudden he could pour all this huge amount of money into television and win. Uh, there was always a rap on Kathleen Matthews, fair or unfair, that she really, while she lived in the district, had never really been very active in it. And I think these are factors that I think work to, uh, you know, work to Jamie Raskin's advantage. Well, one thing that was interesting right after Trone lost the uh, eighth district primary when I interviewed him, I said, you know, is there anything you, in hindsight you would have done differently? And he, you know, he he said basically if he had tried to do it over again, he probably would have started somewhat earlier, which mm-hmm. I think would have probably have helped in terms of the criticism that he, you know, he didn't announce until late January the primary was in late April and then and uh, he relied on this incredible burst of spending in a three month period to try to try to win it where you know as opposed to trying to uh, campaign earlier and uh, to do it you know perhaps in a less money intensive and more of a grassroots kind of, uh, campaign kind of basis but uh, uh, but I, I think you know you mentioned something also earlier Ryan that uh, I was hearing in in 20 uh, 16 as Trone was running for the 8th district that even before the primary came along there were there were already rumblings that if he didn't win the 8th district primary he was you know he would he would run in district 6 if right. Delaney ran for uh, you know uh, ran for governor and I think you as you pointed out there were many uh there are, there are certain advantages he would have in a district 6 that he didn't have in a uh, district 8 I mean, clearly in District 8, Jamie Raskin won in a split field with about 33% of the vote because he just right. he took incredible numbers in that whole strip that goes from Bethesda Chevy Chase over to his home base in Tacoma Park and Silver Spring. Mm-hmm. The further north and, you know, west you went in that district, the better David Trone did. I think I think some of the areas that uh, uh, of the 6th District that, that don't have the same kind of content you will of uh, very committed progressive activists that you see in District 8, uh, where people are less involved in day-to-day politics, where they, you know, where I think television campaigns could have more influence, probably pay to play to his, uh, you know, his, his strengths to a to a greater degree. Well, as I mentioned earlier, uh, the list of candidates who are considering running for the 6th Congressional District or, at the very least, being discussed as running, one name in particular uh, – State Delegate Bill Frick, that's a name who has been mentioned several times um, as considering a bid in the in the 6th District should you know, Congressman Delaney uh, move on. His name has been constantly floating, and he has been a member of the House Delegate since 2007. He's the current majority leader um, of the House of Delegates. He represents District 16. He's a young guy. He's um, – He's born in 1974. Um, he lives in Bethesda, which I believe is, out, of course, outside of the 6th Congressional District, as does um, Roger Mano. 
Um, I know Tony Tony Puka lives inside the district. David Trone yeah. outside of the district. Um, I believe Brian Feldman. Um, he is in my, he is my current state senator in District yeah. 15. I think most of District 15 lives within the district. Um, yeah, of the I, I believe Brian Brian's residence is actually in District uh, Six. Uh, I, I know you're absolutely right. Both Mano and Frick live in the eighth. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Frick's Frick represents the 16th legislative district, and I am told a relatively small sliver of of that is actually in the 6th, most of that district's in the 8th. Mano represents uh, District 19 in the legislature, and if I'm not mistaken, somewhere around a quarter to a third of that district are in the 6th, while the the majority is in the 8th, along with with his residence. But, yeah, Yeah. Bill Frick, you're absolutely right. He... uh, he was making noises in 2016. If you recall in 2016 when Barbara Mikulski retired, um, mm-hmm. and that was standing Chris Van Hollen, it took him about a New York minute to to start running for Senate. Uh, John Delaney didn't immediately rule out running for Senate as well. Uh, I believe he even took, went so far as to take a poll, and I don't think formally ruled himself out of the uh, out of the Senate race until not long before the filing deadline. But while there were some noises about what Delaney perhaps run for the Senate, uh, Frick came forward and immediately, you know, uh, was passing the word that if that seat came open, he was ready to run for it. He, um, I, you know, to get back to what I said earlier, I think there are a lot of, uh, you know, younger, frustrated uh, members of the General Assembly who just don't see a lot of uh, – up, you know, room to move upward in, the, in Annapolis, and I think Frick, Frick is notwithstanding he's now the majority leader, which is something that just happened in the last few months. I think is very much among that number. He uh, he first got to uh, the General Assembly through a uh, he was elected by the uh, Montgomery County Democratic Central Committee in 2007 right. to fill a vacancy, and by 2014, I think clearly had made it very clear publicly and privately he was ready to move on. I think what he wanted to move on to was the uh, was the attorney general's uh, job. Uh, unfortunately for for Bill Frick, uh, Brian Frosch, his senior colleague from to six sixteen, decided to uh, to run for that. And I think a lot of the uh, the activists uh, and people who are really the sort of, if you will, the democratic. Uh, Party grassroots in District 16 clearly felt that Brian Frisch, who had been around since the mid 80s, it was he clearly had the priority of a Frick for uh, for that slot. And Frick right. uh, didn't, you know, still have even after Brian got into it. Bill stayed in the Attorney General's race. I think that rubbed some people, some of that activist core, the wrong way. And Bill, at the very last minute, uh, uh, literally hours before the filing deadline, and. Uh, 2014 uh, got out of the attorney general's race and decided to uh, to run for another term in the legislature. But uh, you know that having you know and, and and got the majority leader's job this year in large part because uh, Mike Bush uh, gently nudged uh, Sheila Hickson, who's from uh, Silver Spring and who's been chairman of the Ways and Means Committee in the House for many many years. He sort of nudged her into a title of chairman emeritus made. Ann Kaiser, who's also Montgomery County, the new chairman of Ways and Means. Ann Kaiser had been majority leader, so she moved up to be chairman of Ways and Means, and Bill moved up to the uh, majority leader's job. So, you know, he's seen some advancement, but still I think this is somebody who is, uh, you know, who clearly was ready to move on four years ago and I think is 
very much ready to move on uh, at this point. I think Delaney's statement, uh, you know, to the Baltimore Sun about quote absolutely considering came out on a Friday and. The same day, I think, uh, all of a sudden, uh, is, is the new, you know, there's a filing pops up at the FEC that yes. has set up a, uh, a committee to raise money. So, uh, yes. uh, yeah, I mean, clearly, if David Crone gets into it, I think it presents a series of challenges, to put it mildly for him. But I think for, I think he, he clearly is, he and I, I think Mono as well, I believe there is a uh, Western Democratic uh party uh summit meeting if you will a week from uh yeah next weekend and i think uh yeah. besides at rocky gap at rocky gap and Trone's going to be there bill frick's going to be there and i believe roger mano is the uh, other one uh mano i should mention uh was a long time uh congressional aide worked for at least i believe i believe i believe worked for three different members of congress before he uh uh, then ran for the legislature for Montgomery uh, County. So, uh, and uh, yeah, he he had um, he was a legislative director to U.S. Representative uh, Sanford Bishop of Georgia for yeah, from yeah. 2002 into 2007, and then senior counsel to um, the very famous Sheila Jackson Lee of Texas yeah. from yeah. 2001 to two, and then um, he worked on the Homeland the U.S. House Homeland Security Task Force. Yeah. Um, so he's been, yeah, he's a he's a Hill guy, and uh, yeah. he was interestingly enough, we should note that he was even a intern in the Clinton White House um, yeah. way back when. And the state senator will be celebrating a birthday on April oh. twenty twenty six, um, and he'll be fifty one. So he's a, okay. he's a all these guys are young guys. Yeah, I, I don't know whether you uh, you know you you read you read through a long list. I'm I, I'm trying to remember whether you mentioned Andrew. Andrew Platt on that list or not, but he's somebody else who's been mentioned. Ah, uh, yes. Is somebody who's interested in? Uh, he, he's he's another former congressional aide who I believe at this point is, is only in his late twenties. Uh, I think was in it was an aide to uh, John Larson, who was the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus, who was a member of Congress well, from Connecticut. Andrew, I think, worked for Larson when he was in his early twenties before uh, running for his first term in the legislature. And, 2014 when he was about 24 so uh Lou, let's uh, switch over sorry. let's switch over to the republican side um it looks yeah. like that um ami hober is seriously considering another bid yeah. even though even after she suffered a 14 point defeat to yeah. congressman john delaney and it doesn't i don't hear any other names aside from maybe one interesting name of note uh, uh state State Delegate Neil Parrott from Washington County, who represents uh, District Two, and, or um, yeah, Two A. Um, he is ultra ultra right wing, uh, the epitome of Tea Party. He's he's virtually accomplished nothing as a Republican. Uh, very right wing. Um, in fact, uh, ten years or so, or so ago, um, he wrote a, a very bizarre letter to the Herald Mail in which he said that. People infected with HIV or AIDS should be mandated to have a, a government-issued tattoo on their body. Um, imagine, yeah. uh, imagine that plane in Montgomery County. Um, yeah. I mean, it's it's just very scary stuff. But nonetheless, um, Ami Hobart looks like that ba- based upon her her money alone and, and name recognition, um, she spent a lot of money. Um, she had a super PAC fund her that was. 
uh, in fairness, mostly funded by her husband, uh, Mark Epstein, a, um, a Qualcomm executive. Looks like she's she's gearing up to run. I see sponsored posts on Facebook. She's standing next to Governor Hogan in Montgomery County. As she's talking to clubs. She's kept herself very relevant by becoming the, I believe the uh, the chairman of the finance committee uh, at the, the the local Republican Party in Montgomery County. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if any other individuals would run against her. Do you, yeah. Have you heard any names? Uh, no, I haven't. You know, I mean, uh, I had I had not heard. You know, until you just mentioned that. You know, Parrot has been perhaps thinking about it. I guess sort of my assumption was that, given how many state uh, Republican delegates and state senators there are, and you know, in, in that district, once you get west of uh, Montgomery, that there'd be somebody who would be at least looking at it. But uh, uh, at this point, I haven't heard. Of anybody outside of Ami who is, you know, seriously thinking about it, you know, you're absolutely right. She's making and you know, she's keeping herself uh, very visible. I think the uh, the challenge of that district is, I think you well know, uh, Ryan, since you're, I believe you grew up in in Washington County, so uh, That's right. you're more familiar with that district than I than I am. As, as opposed to a place like the Eighth District, where putting aside, you know, uh, pieces of Frederick and pieces of Carol where David Trone had to go on Baltimore television to reach. Uh, you can basically hit just about the, uh, all of the 8th District through a, you know, through buys of cable in Montgomery County or going on Washington television, which is uh, you know not cheap. Clearly Trone and uh, Kathleen Matthews were among the two able to afford it last time, but at least it's it's a district where a saturation television campaign can get your visibility up and up. Hurry, the challenge about, I think, the 6th District, which, if I'm not mistaken, if you start in Potomac and Gaithersburg, it's 200 miles to the uh, <laughs> western boundary, uh, yeah. you know, at the uh, tail end of Garrett County, and trying to get yourself known uh, in a primary in a district that, that's, that is that big is a challenge. The fact that Ami has gone through it once, you know, that she obviously did spend some money, be it on local cable uh, and be it, you know, through uh, web advertising and the like, you know, indicates that she is going to clearly, I think, start, you know, if she, if anybody takes her on, be it a member of the state, of the state uh, uh, delegation or somebody else, I think they're going to have the problem that outside of their own district, they're not going to be very well known. They're going to be running against somebody who, you know, has already been been around a very expansive district uh, once before, but but you know, yeah, you know, I was saying earlier about being very being it must be very it's very frustrating to be part of a the Democratic minority party in the House of Representatives. It's got to be equally, if not more, frustrating to be a member of the Republican minority in the General Assembly. And uh, yeah. you know, I I, I I don't doubt that somebody uh, you know looking at a Republican-controlled House and saying, gee. You know, it may be worth a shot. What do I have to lose? I give up my seat right. in the minority party in the Maryland House of Delegates, and I could be in the majority in the uh, House of Representatives, depending on what happens in 2018. So, you know, for, for that reason, I wouldn't be surprised if somebody uh, somebody tries it. But I think particularly if her husband is willing to, as you point out, uh, he virtually he funded most of the PAC, I believe that 
he came up with about three and a half million of his own money, and yeah. I think there might have been about five thousand in outside contributions of that pack, but it was virtually all him. And uh, you know, assuming he's willing to, uh, you know, come up with that kind of spending again, I think it's going to be uh, prohibitive for anybody to uh, to try to knock her off in the uh, assuming right. he decides to run uh, um, at this point. So, uh, yeah, the other question too is. Uh, and this, you know, probably can't be answered until we have a better idea of what the political climate is closer to 2018 as to the national parties, uh, you know, get, get involved. Uh, the Republicans last time ultimately did not get, you know, did not get involved on uh, Ami Hober's behalf. I suspect it was in part because they were spending their money trying to protect a number of vulnerable, uh, vulnerable incumbents. Did uh, so they get involved this time or? particularly if the House of Representatives on the line, do they spend a lot more of their money trying to protect incumbents to the Democrats, uh, you know, in, in an effort to hold on to a seat that an incumbent is, a Democrat is leaving, spend some money. Uh, and obviously there's the whole issue of putting aside uh, Amy Hober's husband, do other, do other super PACs, uh, perhaps more broadly funded ones, get involved as well. So, right. Uh, I wanna, an open, Lou, I want to move on to... Sure, I want to ahead. move over to uh, for the last few minutes to Montgomery County executive in the council yeah. race. Here's a question for you. Yeah. Can a Republican win any of the county council seats that are up for grabs in 2018? Um, you know, it obviously is going to depend on the candidate. And, and I, I know there's at least one Republican – well, two, excuse me, uh, uh, Tom Furlan, who I know you well, you well know and – uh, Ed Amatetti and I, I have to confess yeah. I haven't had a chance to really talk to either one of them. I, I believe. Am I correct? They're both running in in District Two at this point. I know Amatetti. That is, is correct. Uh, they're uh, they're both registered to run in and Council District Two. That is Dr. Yeah. Tom Ferroman, Ed Ed Amatetti, yeah. um, and both are formidable candidates. And I yeah. think that you'll see that uh, it'll be an interesting um, race there, um, but. My my general impression is is that no matter the type of campaign that they run, um, it, it's going to be it's going to be exceedingly difficult to in this political climate, especially in Montgomery County, given that Donald Trump is president, that people are so upset um, at, at the way things went. It's going to be very difficult for any Republican to win. Uh, I tend to agree with you. I mean, obviously, in 2014, which was a you know, I think a year a lot more favorable Republicans than 2018 may turn out to be. Uh, you know, there were certainly two or three uh, Republicans who, uh, particularly at the state legislative level, who I think in both District 15 and I think uh, uh, District 14 uh, mounted uh, competitive campaigns but but fell short. And I know that, you know, the Montgomery County Republicans are, seem, are convinced that one of these years they're going to you know, once again, make some inroads in one of those districts further to the north. But you know, this is probably not the year. This it's uh, you know, it's going to happen. Uh, you know, I and, I and obviously this is another discussion that could go on for a while. But you know, the question becomes, uh, what kind of Republican can uh, you know can get elected to Montgomery County? I have found that I think a number of the Republicans who are you know who are running are. If they're, if they're not Neil Parrott kind of Republicans, tend to be fairly conservative as opposed to 
if you will, a Connie, a Connie Morella or a Larry Ogan kind of Republican yeah. who might be more more electable in a place like, uh, you know, a place like Montgomery. But uh, but yeah, I, th- I think it's going to be. Uh, uh, I would be surprised to see the Montgomery County Council. Clearly, it's going to be a very different council because four of the uh, nine members are, are, thanks to Robin Ficker's term limits referendum, uh, can't run again. Three of them are going to run for county executive. But you're going to have at least four, four new members of the county council uh, next time, if not more, depending on what uh, on what happens. Um, the, the the Montgomery County executive race is heating yeah. up. You have a number of um, very popular and um, well-established candidates of George yeah. Levenfall, who is a current county yeah. councilman, Mark yeah. Elric, who is a pro- very yeah. progressive. Um, and had a big turnout for his kickoff, and yeah. you're looking at you know possibly David Trone, and then on the yeah. Republican side, I haven't heard any of the other Republican names being mentioned. Um, Robin Ficker is the declared candidate, and I, I, I think of Robin Ficker as uh, yes, another perennial candidate, but he recently got term limits on the battle uh, or on yeah. the ballot, and it was a successful. Uh, adventure, and uh, he he got you know he was primarily responsible, but it's still Robin Ficker, <laughs> yeah. so yeah, he's, a, he's not well liked or respected in Montgomery County for a number of reasons, and I have no doubt that he'll play dirty, and I I think that um, any any Democratic candidate should Robin Ficker be the victor in the Republican primary will ultimately beat whomever the Republicans put up. I mean, as you well know, Robin Ficker has, has had more success in passing referendums than he has in getting himself elected to office. And, uh, you know, where the term limits being uh, the latest example of that, along with the tax uh, measure that he got passed about a decade ago. Uh, I mean, clearly, I think that barring some tremendous surprise, when I say tremendous surprise, some very wealthy guy or woman comes out of the woodwork and says, I want to run for county executive, and they can self-fund, and they decide to run as an independent, which mm-hmm. I don't see happening this time. I think the winner of the Democratic primary is going to be the uh, next county executive, and that gets back to the issue of what does David Trone do? Does he uh, does he run for county executive? Does he run for District 6? I think, if, uh, as I said earlier, if he runs in for county executive, he, he takes the oxygen out of the out of the room for a number of other people who are sort of, if you will, jockeying for the support of the business community. The business community is very, very nervous about a guy like Mark Elrich, who, as you point out, is, you know, is the most probably the most progressive member of the uh, of the council, uh, and who, uh, uh, who who basically starts with a very, very defined base. He's got uh, he's got a defined base of progressive activists. He's got a defined base of a lot of people who have been who share his views, his skeptical views about growth and development in Montgomery County. Right. These are the kind of people who are going to, uh, you know, get out and vote in the primary. Uh, you know, I suspect his ceiling of support is going to be limited. But again, if you have four, five, six people running in a uh, in a primary and there's no runoff, uh, a, a guy like Elrich, you know, could well win with 25 uh, to 30% of the vote, which is something that would happen with Jamie Raskin, you know, last time around, which is why when I did a magazine piece recently on the uh, county executives race, I sort of said for, 
at this point, you know, there are a number of people, even people who don't really like him, who will privately concede that Mark Elridge is, starts out as the nominal front runner only because he's got this very defined and very, uh, very committed kind of base. And uh, as I said, the next question is really, you know, does David Trone get in? If he doesn't, who inherits that sort of mantle of, uh, of business support? And there's a guy like Roger Berliner, who I think is liked by the business community in Bethesda and Chevy Chase, in effect become the de facto business candidate. If Trone's not there, people uh, get the support of people who simply don't want Mark Elridge as the, uh, you know, as the county executive. And, and uh, I, I don't think overlook- you can rule out Leventhal either. I mean, I think he's a formidable can- candidate and a campaigner. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, George has certainly been around for, uh, you know, for four uh, for four terms. I don't think you can rule him out. His, you know, he speaks fluent uh, Spanish. His wife is uh, is Latino. The Latino, you know, um, you know, the question becomes to what degree, you know, will they turn out in, you know, rough proportion to the, uh, uh, the to the population of the county. But right now, the you know, the 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 county is going. Is approaching 20% Hispanic uh, American, so that's so that's a sizable block. Uh, I mean, frankly, what and I said uh, I'll say this because I said this in the piece that I, uh, the magazine piece I did. George is uh, is somebody who <laughs> who, who doesn't uh, shy away from uh, you know uh, letting you know what he thinks, and he's sure. you know he he's gotten into it with a number of groups, and uh, you know and he and has gotten somewhat crosswise with them, and to what to read this. You know, this hurts him down the line. I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I, I do think that, you know, while he potentially is in a position, for reasons I just mentioned, to uh, tap into, into the Latino vote, I think he probably does not have as defined a – neither he nor Roger Berliner of the council members who are running have as defined a base and committed a base right now as Elrich. And that's where I think Elrich probably starts, uh, you know, starts again as a nominal front runner, which is by, by no means to say that – you know he's guaranteed of getting the uh, getting the nomination in uh, you know in, in what June of uh, 2018. Well, and he's he's also very well liked and he's popular. And you look at Elrich, who would be the natural fit for the labor endorsement as well, yeah. and for for the teachers as um, and that's that's what my sources are telling me. Yeah. Um, I'm inclined to think that it's going to be that. Trone is, as we mentioned earlier in the show, that it's a 800-pound elephant. Whatever he decides to do based yeah. upon his money alone will yeah. resolve to oust some candidates who may be thinking about it. But the more candidates who jump in um, for this uh, – for the county executive seat, um, are, it could turn out to be you know, another Jamie Raskin-type primary. Yeah, um, yeah and, and this, is where, this is where absolutely I think that if you were – Dealing with four, you know, four, five, six people in the primary, it probably helps a, it probably helps a guy like, uh, like, like Elrich for the reasons we've been, uh, we've been talking. It would be a very different situation if there was a runoff here and you ended up with Elrich versus somebody else. I think uh, Mark would be at a certain, it would be at far less of an advantage in there than he is in this kind of situation. But uh, it's. Uh, it could well be a split field. Uh, even even if Trone clears the field of a number of other people who, again, I think see themselves as getting a certain amount of business support, you are clearly going to have at least uh, – there are three council members, Elridge, Roger Berliner, and 
George Leventhal who are in this race to stay. They have nothing to lose. They, mm-hmm. you know, they obviously are, uh, you know, can't run for their uh, their council seats again. Uh, well, at least I know Elrich and George have been eyeing the county executive's race for years, or the county executive seat for years, and I think you know this is obviously their shot, and they're going to uh, they're going to take yeah. it. So I, I, I think you're, you're you're at very least talking about a four a four way race and. You know, I, suspect, I strongly suspect they're going to, you know, there could be one or two other people who uh, who get into it as well. You know, depending on what you know what Trone uh, does or doesn't decide to do. As we wrap up the show, Lou, any any speculation about possible other Republican candidates aside from Robin Ficker jumping into the Montgomery County Republican primary for a county executive? Maybe someone like a Jim Shalek who ran last time. Yeah. And obviously, you know, sort of did did about as well as most of the uh, Republican candidates did, as I recall. It was sort of a two to one, kind of uh, kind of went for Leggett. Uh, I have not heard of anybody else besides uh, Robin Fickers seriously thinking about it. I just think, uh, you know, it's you know, it, as you know, since uh, there has not been a Republican county executive in Montgomery County since the first one, uh, James Gleason uh, was elected in 1970, which was the first. First time yeah. there was a county executive, and I think he served two terms and left voluntarily in '78, and that was the last time there was a Republican. And I think probably in my recollection, I've been in the county since 1986, and up until the 1990s, the Republicans were certainly, you know, putting on credible competitive races for county executive in Montgomery County. I think that's that's tended to go by the wayside in the last uh, decade, and I think part of that is just. You know, you, you look at the registration edge, uh, the Republican, you know, the, you know what, 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 what once was a two-to-one Democratic registration edge in the county is now more approaching three-to-one. I think it's, as we talked about earlier, I think the uh, at this point uh, the Republican emphasis initially if they're, they, as they try to rebuild the party in Montgomery County is going to have to be in some of those areas, be it District 2, be it, District in the legislature, District 15, District 14, District 39 in the north, where there are more and more Republicans and, and something more at least to build on, uh, you know, with I think it's going to be a while before, uh, you know, again, barring bar, barring some barring some Connie Morella kind of kind of Republican, you know, with, with a lot of money who wants to come and come and run. I think it's going to be very it's going to be hard for uh you know the Republicans to be competitive uh, well, in the near future. Especially, yeah, especially if Ficker's the the chosen candidate by the yeah. Republicans, and yeah. he was so passionate about Donald Trump, and when he ran for yeah. the sixth congressional district, uh, there's no love lost between many Republicans and certainly Democrats for Robin Ficker. I mean, his long list of well documented. Um, Peccadillos uh, and issues are, you know, it's out there. So whomever, I believe whomever essentially wins the Democratic primary is going to be the next county executive. So, all right, Lou, well, we we covered a lot of territory tonight. It'll be interesting to find out what happens in the 6th Congressional District, and uh, it's going to be interesting to follow these local races in Montgomery uh, for the county council here in Montgomery County. And we're going to be following it. And Lou, I, um, I read your material all the time. Anytime you release a new piece uh, and uh, I encourage all my listeners to check, 
you out. Uh, you're on Twitter at Potomac Peck. Um, that's your Twitter handle. And you, yep. where can we find you at Bethesda Beat? Uh, basically, I'm, it's uh, you can uh, usually find me uh, periodically. You know, as I as I come up with the story. So uh, uh, we Bethesda Beat has a uh, it is published five days a week, and it uh, and it. Uh, uh, has an email alert that people can sign up for that comes out at 11:30 every day, and so when I have a piece, it's going to be on that email alert. But if you go to www.bethesdamagazine.com, uh, that's going to be the home page, and Bethesda Beat is very prominently featured there, so it's easy enough to uh, you know to see what the uh, menu of news stories are that particular day. Uh, and just before we go, I would just uh, one area we didn't get a chance to talk about much was there was the whole issue of the. Uh, of county council races, and I just think uh, I would urge uh, the listeners to keep an eye there, but out there, because uh, I have a li- I have a list of about three dozen people who either are running or thinking about running. So, oh. particularly with with uh, uh, this is on it's it's it, it's highly unusual. It's usually been maybe one retire in recent year election cycles, maybe one retirement, at max two in in a given. Uh, in a given cycle now you again you have literally you're going to have four uh vacancies three at large one in district one in terms of the uh, county council because of the term limits uh bill and uh because of this kind of potential turnover you have a you're going to have a very large number of people uh, uh running for county council which you may have seen the other day one of uh my colleagues at Beth has to be reported that the county council is about to throw another one million dollars into this new uh, public financing fund to bring it up to 11, 11 million because at this point the calculations are such that so many people may try to tap into this that they, uh, they you know, there's some nervousness about whether they have enough money, whether they're going to have enough money, or whether they're going to have to uh, come up with a supplemental appropriation of some kind. Well, you will always have the story uh, in an era where journalism is flourishing and it's skyrocketing and where we need journalists in the mold of lupex you define you are the pinnacle of of what i see journalism should become and for my generation and you know lou as a young aspiring political journalist myself um with uh you know we do podcast and we you know we're trying to take advantage of the new media um I I still find myself picking up a hard copy of a newspaper or a publication or the New Yorker, the Atlantic, um, you know, National Review, and um, it, there's just something about that that having that tangible copy um, of of news, the smell. I'm telling you, it's it's uh, something that I look forward to every day, and that is quality journalism. And all the years that you have committed your career to doing that, uh, we certainly appreciate it, and uh, it it matters in this era. I, I appreciate that, Ryan. And just if I could get in a very brief closing plug, besides my uh, day job, if you will, at Bethesda Magazine, I am also uh, proud to be part of a steering committee that is trying to get a publication called uh, Maryland Matters off the ground. And uh, Maryland Matters is uh, online, and it's it's devoted to uh, uh, trying to fill the void that has been created by the fact that in this day and age, many of the so-called legacy media 
are struggling and have had to cut back on their coverage and you know and, and eventually I'm hoping that uh, somebody's going to find the new economic model or place the one that was if you will blown apart by the internet but in the meantime a number of uh, publications around the country are cropping up to uh, try to do this on a nonprofit basis Maryland matters is uh, you know is among them so uh, on Twitter at Maryland matters uh, if you know anybody wants to take a look at the Twitter site and you know, and uh, there is there is a uh, a website that's been started up, and again, we're uh, Josh Kurtz is the founder, and he's trying to raise some money to uh, to hire a staff and to uh, to really ramp up the kind of reporting there. So I just I just mentioned that because uh, you're absolutely right. There is a you know there is there is clearly a need for uh, uh, given the challenges of the uh, traditional media for the for the for that kind of reporting. That, you and I are talking about. All right. Well, Lou, you have a, a wonderful week. Uh, we'll be, uh, I will be attending that Democratic, uh, I, uh, the convention or the summit, as I should clarify, in Western Maryland. I'm going to be there um, paying a close, close attention to all the happenings and to, to learn a little bit more about what's happening on the Democratic front. And um, I know that the convention for the Maryland Republican Party is being held in sunny Ocean City next weekend yeah. as well. So there's lots of politics going on. Yeah. However, we chose to attend the uh, – it seems like there's a lot of energy here uh, within the, the local Democratic parties as they're gearing up for 2018. So with that, I want to thank you for your time. Uh, I know you're a busy man, and uh, you're a stand-up guy for coming on. We appreciate it. And uh, with that uh, – I hope you uh, decide to come back with us again soon. Um, it would be a pleasure. Thank you for having me again, Ryan, and thank you for all that you uh, all that you do. Well, I appreciate that, and uh, have a great week, Lou. You too. Thanks. Right. Good night. Good night, Lou Peck, journalist, um, just a, an all-around tremendous talent, and we're glad to have him on the show tonight. So as we wrap up. We appreciate Lou's time, and uh, he mentioned the website Maryland Matters. I encourage all my listeners to check it out on online. It's MarylandMattersBlog.wordpress.com, and uh, you can check it out there. Uh, it's pretty interesting. It's a political news. Um, Josh Kurtz is a fantastic writer. I follow him. Uh, he has the scoop on Maryland politics, so I encourage you to to read it and perhaps give a donation. Um, so with that, uh, you can find us again on the web, um, minordetail.com. We've taken a brief sabbatical on our, on our blog. We're looking to overhaul it and giving it a makeover here uh, in the very, very near future. And uh, we're expanding our, our media network, and we're, we're, we're working on a few things. So stand by. I hope you all have a great week. Thank you for listening. And once again, we're here every Sunday night at 9 p.m., on blogtalkradio.com slash a minor detail. News, commentary, gossip, delivered with a libertarian twist. 
A minor detail is an edgy, no-bullshit approach to Maryland politics. Ryan Miner and Eric Beasley proactively unwind the best stories of the week every Sunday night, beginning at 9 p.m. on blogtalkradio.com. That is blogtalkradio.com forward slash a minor detail. Be part of the show. Voice your opinion by calling 646-716-5971.